Jamie Summers from Afternoons with Heart and Humor. Something you may not know about me is I'm really conscious of what I put in my body. So I eat healthy, try to stay as active as possible. That's also why I was so excited when I heard that Dr. Kellum at the Kellum Stem Cell Institute is able to retrieve my own stem cells and place them exactly where I need them most with focused infusions. If you're ready for something more effective and a healthier way to heal, get more information at KellumStemCellInstitute.com. Hey, it's Doug with an opportunity to catch up with Ron Block, author of Abiding Dependence, Living Moment by Moment in the Love of God. Ron is a banjoist, guitarist, singer, and songwriter, 14 Grammy Awards, best known as a member of the bluegrass band Allison Krauss and Union Station. Ron, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me on, Doug. For full disclosure... Uh, Allison Krauss and Union Station's version of You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All was the first dance for my wife and I's wedding in 96. So <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. So you danced to, to, to my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. T- to begin, before we even start about um, this particular book, let's talk about uh, musicianship. Was, was music something that you grew up with? It was in your family you were always bent towards or... Give us a little history on that. Yeah, my uh, I remember really early on, my mom loved country music. And, of course, where she grew up and when she grew up in California, it wasn't cool. So she would <laughs> listen, you know, she'd listen with a little AM radio in her bed, you know, to listen to country music. So I, I grew up, she had Marty Robbins, Gunfighter Ballads, and Trail Songs. Mm. And uh, I remember that record from the time I was really small. So that was the first experience. And then my brothers played everything from, you know, like Paul McCartney and Wings, and they listened to Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles. And so I heard lots of stuff growing up. I didn't hear bluegrass until I was about 12 or 13. Mm. And uh, my dad had a music store. And immediately after hearing Lester Flatt, on TV and the banjo player, uh, I was just right away. I was, Dad, I need a banjo. I need to get a banjo. Dad, can you give me a banjo? When are you going to get me a banjo, Dad? So, so you know, he had a music store, so he, you know, he could order one, and so he got me my first banjo and and all that. And uh, and then it was just a, I mean, I just went nuts for it. I, I'd already played guitar from the age of eleven, but but I really got into both all through my teen years, that's pretty much all I did except for going to school and working. Wow. And, uh, and then in my twenties, like by the time I was 16, I, I was, I just knew I was supposed to play music. I knew I wanted to, and I just had this inner sense that if I don't do this, I'm going to be really unhappy. That is incredible. They say, find something that you're passionate about. Now for so many folks that, that have the desire to go into music, were you a quote unquote overnight success or no, <laughs> So, so, you know, my, of course, my, my dad, my stepmother, my aunt, and, you know, they, they were worried that I was going to fail. And I think the plan was for me to take over dad's store. Mm. And here I was at 16 going, I don't want to do that. I want to play music. So, you know, so it, so it took, once I decided to do that and I was really, really committed to it and just practiced every spare second. Uh, it took me all the way. I was 27, I think, or 28 when I joined Allison's band. So all that time in between, I worked for my dad's music store part time till I was 21. Mm-hmm. But those years from 21 till I was 27 or 28, they were pretty, 
uh, pretty uh, – uh, I live the bluegrass life, let's just say, the bluegrass, uh, bluegrass musician life. <laughs> well, you know, back then it was like play a few gigs here and there and, you know. But yeah, no, it was a, there was an arc to it, and there were, and I learned a lot of lessons. And one of the things that really helped me and benefited me is I had a pastor when I was a teenager saying, "You can trust God in and what Jesus says in Matthew six that consider the lilies, consider the sparrows; He's going to take care of you." And so, and my mom would say, "Do what God put in your heart to do, and mm. trust Him." Mm. So I had that opposite kind of the, you know, oh, you got to worry about making a living and what if you don't make enough money and that kind of stuff. And those valid things that my dad and, and that side of my family brought up, they brought up. They, now, of course, as an adult, I go, of course they would say that. <laughs> <laughs> because they're not idiots. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, but back then, you know, like we, we argued about it and, uh, and I'm, but I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out, but I'm also glad they cared about me that much, you know? Well, to understand some of the musical journey, so how interwoven is that the spiritual journey? Was faith something? It sounds like maybe if your mom's encouraging you in things of God, were you raised in a Christian home? I was, uh, my mom, uh, she had a, you know, pretty dark, um, background of abuse and, you know, that kind of thing. And so when she, um, got saved at, she was probably, it was, it was in 66. So I was two years old. So my, I had two older brothers and they kind of grew up, you know, in their early years with a different mom than Mm -hmm. I did. Mom changed, you know, and, uh, so I grew up in her love. Like she, she finally found that she was loved by God, by her father and her earthly father had not well loved her at all. And so, so it exploded in her. And of course that got on me. And so by the time I was five and six, I was going forward in church and, you know, and mom bought me a Bible and I read the family Bible library. And so like my whole childhood was filled with the Bible, reading the Bible, reading Bible books, and then also fantasy literature and science fiction and all kinds of other stuff. So, uh, You know, a similar background, I think, too, going to Christian school for myself and, and having things of God. But there was certainly a time in my life where I had a lot of head knowledge and, a, and no heart knowledge. Was, was there a time that you would point to where you sort of crossed that divide, or maybe it's always been heart knowledge from the get-go? Yeah, I was going to make a joke and go, oh, yes, I've always had it together, Doug. And, uh, <laughs> no. So, you know, like, and you know how, you understand how, like, knowledge is progressive uh, and growth is progressive because that's what growth is. It's progression. So, you know, in the early years, my concept of God was, you know, it was almost like God, God loved me, but he was a little bit like Zeus. Mm. You know, angry if I sinned and, mm-hmm. you know, like it was a little bit Zeus-like as I look back. And I found in my teens a pastor that really taught that you're saved by grace through faith, through trusting God. And I had a good friend that was uh, also filling me full of that. So that was another step in the journey was to go, oh, God loves me simply because I trust him. It's not based on my doing so it's my based on my trusting of him. So, you know, that was a whole phase. And then I got really deeply into Bible study. 
in my 20s. And, you know, that kind of produced, I think, just some head knowledge, which ultimately was good because it gave me a grasp on things now, Mm -hmm. just like... Just like when Paul was, you know, going through all that as a Pharisee, he he ended up with a really good grasp of biblical concepts that God used later. So I I built, you know, in my thinking, this whole, you know, like looking at the Christian life I grew up with, what people said about it, what I was taught about it, and not deconstructing, but simply taking away, cutting away the things that were not necessary and not true. So that that whole head knowledge thing at time was a good thing. And then then it's just been a progressive, you know, understanding of like if if this doesn't change my behavior, it doesn't mean anything. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's you know, that's a Lewis quote. He says if you know fine insights and, you know, fine feelings and new experiences with God don't actually do anything unless they make our actual behavior better. And that's what I was always on about in the 90s, is like, I need to find a way to forgive people, to not be resentful, to not be so easily frustrated, to not feel bad if I don't get that gig or this gig. You know, like, I need to figure this out. And um, so the gospel was the way to do that. And it really began to transform me as I began to understand some of the truths that I present in that book. So... Yep, Ron Block is our guest. We're talking about his book, Abiding Dependence, Living Moment by Moment in the Love of God. So to understand the spiritual and musical journey, now what was the genesis of this book? Was it just one day to say, I've got some things I need to share, or how do you go from playing all of this music to then writing this book? Well, I've always been interested in writing, and that was one of the things I was decent at in high school, uh, terrible at math. (laughs) Um, got a D in biology one year because I was reading Earl Scruggs's banjo book the whole time <laughs> in class. <laughs> um, and my dad said, really, a D? And I, I was like, okay, that'll never happen again, I promise. <laughs> but so the um, I totally forget what we were talking about now because I just thought of my dad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, I mean, just the genesis of the book, what led you to write a book in the oh, first Oh, right, 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 right. So, you know, I was good at writing back then. And um, the English was one of my, you know, things that I was pretty good at. And so as, I, as I've gone along, I've journaled and written articles and things like that. And as I began in the 90s to learn some of who I am in Christ, I started writing about it and posting it. On what on my old website, I, I posted tons of stuff on my old website. But at at one point, I decided to turn that into a music website because that's what people want from mm-hmm. me mostly is music. And I was, you know, they were going and seeing all this other stuff. So I started writing for uh, and Andrew Peterson's website, The Rabbit Room, back when they when they started that website, and it's a. Uh, it's sort of like an artistic community mm-hmm. with sort of faith-centered, you know, like at the base of it is, you know, a commonality of believers, but it's all creativity. It's all about creativity and writing and music. So I started writing for that site, and I did, I've did. i done that for the, since they started 2007 or 8 or 9, mm-hmm. whenever that was. And so I've done a lot of writing and posting on uh, in discussion groups and things like that. So it was a, the writing part of it was just another part of what I do. 
But the writing the book uh, involved uh, the acquisitions editor asked a friend of hers who happened to be a friend of mine, Andrew Osenga, who's a great songwriter and artist. Um, and she said, who do you think should write a book? And Andrew said, Ron Block. Mm. So she got so she got a hold of me. Trillia Newbell got a hold of me and said, hey. You know, he said this, do you want to do this? And uh, we talked, had a Zoom meeting, and and talked about it um, being a devotional style, you know, thing. And uh, and it was going to originally be about identity in Christ, uh, but I realized I had to talk. After a certain point, I went, okay, I can't talk about identity in Christ until I talk about Christ. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what that means. So, yeah, so it was a natural progression for me to to write a book, it, it was a natural progression. I would have never sought it out myself, um, partly maybe because, you know, in that area, I'm a little bit lazy and I'd rather just write a post or, a, <laughs> or an article because it's, it's easier, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, that's why it's one reason I think God had to go, look, here, I'm just going to hand it to you because you're being a baby. <laughs> 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 well, well, unpack the phrase a little bit for us. Abiding dependence. What what does abiding dependence mean? Well, it it came to you know it just it was a phrase that just popped out as I was writing, and later it became the you know the title of the book. But it it's the it's the phrase that kind of for me best sums up the attitude Jesus said when he you know that he told us to have when he said abide in me. Mm. Um, because, uh, you know, as a, you know, as a branch remains in the vine or abides in the vine, so abide in me. So a, a branch is dependent. A branch is nothing in and of itself. If you cut the branch off, it, it may look alive for a while, but it stops producing anything. There's no life in it anymore except the life that was in it as it was cut off, and then that life begins to die. So the branch is entirely dependent on being connected to the vine or the tree or whatever. So so abiding dependence is is just simply describing what it means to live in a daily recognition of that that I'm in Christ and that Christ is in me and that he's present all the time. It, he doesn't leave if I sin or he doesn't leave if I'm tempted. He's there all the time. No matter what, even if I'm not recognizing him, he's there. So my job as a believer is to recognize him. And and, and and every day, you know, when I get up to go, you are so welcome in my life, and I want you to live through me today to people and love people and um, give me a sense of purpose and redemption and meaning and, and carry me through this day with energy. And, you know, you you just, you know how that, you know how that is. You Mm -hmm. just pray Mm -hmm. the things that you feel are important for for that day. And God, and, and God cares about that stuff, that little day to day stuff. He just cares about it. He loves that. And he loves to take part in that with us. You know, he's there with us all the time, but he loves when we go, you know, hey, Lord, I need to fix this, you know, air conditioner. Can you can <laughs> can we do this together? Can you help me with it? And mm-hmm. and he'll tell you stuff. You know, I do that when I practice. Lord, can you know, I'm having trouble with this passage or this thing that I'm trying to work on. And he'll actually, I you know, I'll, I'll just have, have thoughts come into my head 
that go try this or try that, right? So yeah. God will God will live each day with us, and um, and we continually we often forget. You know, we go through the day and we get too busy, or I'm video editing or something, and I don't have time to think of God right then. But He's still there all the time, and that's the essence of what it means to live in abiding dependence. It's recognition that He's with us and in us. What is your hope for uh, a few takeaways after people have read the book? Uh, what, what do you think is going to land on their heart? I think, you know, I went back, you know, I had started to write a devotional about identity in Christ, and then I went back and I, I just went, okay, I've got to start this whole thing with Jesus. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for people is that Jesus, you know, we, we always talk about Jesus being the Son of God, fully God and fully man, but we don't actually define that. We really, what, what many people really believe, and I grew up believing this, that Jesus was fully God and partially man. Mm. Uh, partially man in that, you know, he had all his God powers, and so he was walking around omnipotent, omniscient, and knew everything everybody was thinking. So that's not like a man. That's not human. Right. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I believed he wasn't fully human. But as I looked at Philippians and the idea that he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of deity. He was still the son of God, but he emptied himself of the use of his his all knowing nature and his all power mm. because he wasn't all powerful and he wasn't all knowing. And several examples in the Bible show that, like the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, take this cup, if it's possible, take this cup away. And an omniscient being doesn't pray if this is possible. He mm. would simply know mm. if it was or not. Mm. Good point. So he prayed it three times. He was like, please tell me, because I don't know. So he was not omniscient. And he. so Jesus had to live just like I have to live, just like you have to live. We have to live every day going, okay. I don't know everything. I don't know what's coming today, but I trust you, Lord, and I'm going to expect you to live in me and through me to people. I expect you to put intel into my head and heart when I'm talking to other people or I have to go here or do that, and you're going to guide me today. And I I welcome your guidance. I welcome your life. I welcome you into living this life with me, through me, and even as me, like through my personality. And through my gifts and through my skills, live through me and be yourself through me. So that's, you know, that's the essence of it, really. So the takeaway is that one of the biggest ones is that Jesus had to do just that. He had to live just like we have to live. Mm. Man, I received that. You, you got my you got my head spinning because again, it goes into that that head knowledge. Even to think about Jesus weeping, why would you weep over someone you know that's coming back to life? But in that moment, yeah, I never yep. really saw it that way. Yep, and you know, like theologians try to like you know go around this. I looked up one example of Jesus not knowing, and it's where the woman uh, with the issue of blood touches him, and he's in a crowd of people, and suddenly he stops and he goes, "Whoa, whoa." wait a second, who touched me? Mm. And, you know, Peter or whoever said, everyone's touching you. Are you crazy? <laughs> you know, look at this crowd. And he goes, no, someone touched me and I felt power go out of me. So 
now the you know some commentaries say well he really knew and he just wanted he was trying to get the woman to admit that it was her mm. and it's like it's this whole thing that they want to hang on to the omniscience of Jesus and knowing everything and if you if if you know God knows everything and therefore God is never afraid mm. i mean God is never afraid of anything cuz he knows everything and he's all powerful well Jesus was afraid Jesus Jesus felt fear. Jesus had to live just like a human being. So you see him act in the Gospels, not out of fear, but you see him having to have courage in the face of Pharisees. You see him having to have courage in Gethsemane, even though he's sweating blood. So, so that, that's the thing, is that the, the humanity of Jesus is palpable in the Gospels. And unless we cover it up with the idea that, oh, he's God, we'll fully see his humanity, and then we can understand that he understands us. He understands me when I'm frustrated. He understands me when I'm fearful. He understands me when I'm, you know, struggling with my circumstances, because he felt those same pulls. He didn't live according to them, but he felt them. Mm, mm, I love that. I love that. Thank you. Well, Ron, I certainly want to be respectful of the time. Um, is there anything that we uh, didn't touch on that you want to make sure we get in? <laughs> well, that could go on for a long time. <laughs> I, I, you can tell I love talking about this stuff. It's uh, because it's the, you know, it's the center and heartbeat of the Christian life is Christ. Yeah. And and unless you know we can, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with church programs and church attendance and and uh, you know accountability groups and all that stuff that we do, but if those things are central and if those things are our way, our fleshly way to try to control our behavior, we will not live a Christian life. Mm. Mm. If if those things are the, the only way, now they can be a means of of showing us who we are, like an accountability group, you know, an accountability partner, can you can talk to them and they can say, hey, you know, I know you're tempted to do such and such, but this is not who you are, because you're really filled with Christ. That's a different thing. But if, but if it's just a program or, or an accountability group that's just using shame or fear of shame to keep you from sinning, that's so, those are all flesh band-aids. Those are flesh fixes. The center of the Christian life is to look in the mirror and go, Christ is here with me, in me, and he's going to live through me to people today. And then if I fail today, I'm going to get up the next morning and do exactly the same thing. And I'm going to keep doing that and keep believing because uh, 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 unless you believe, surely you will not be established. Like belief, faith, trust comes first, and then the results begin to come. So transformation comes only after we believe and we hold a committed trust, hang in our body on the truth that Christ lives in us. We hang on and hang on and hang on, and God begins to change us. And sometimes it may take a long time. It may take several years before we start going, wow, I'm different than I was four years ago. But that's the center and heartbeat of the Christian life. I think that's the message of the book is, is go to him. It's like, it's like me taking the hand of Jesus and, and, then, and then putting it in the hand of the reader. That's what I wanted to do is, is to have the reader encounter that living Savior. And uh, a book can't fully do that because the reader has to uh, go to Jesus 
and do that for himself. We all have to get him for ourselves. So that's awesome. This is great, Ron. Goodness, thank you so much. <laughs> you got my head spinning over here. That was great revelation, even for me personally here. Oh, that's great. It's great to hear, Doug. And uh, hey, I'm sure our paths will cross at some point in rural Tennessee. <laughs> Yeah, well, we don't live far from one another, so. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. That's awesome. Do you see more books in your future, or uh, who knows? Probably, you know, like I, I've I've already started, you know, that that little germ is there, but I haven't really thought through about about what, and and it depends on if if Moody wanted to do that or not, and if, mm-hmm. if they didn't, I might still do it. I don't. I just don't know at this point. Right now, I'm focused on. Uh, banjo instruction and uh, making a banjo app and uh, some really good stuff coming up in the next couple of months for me uh, composing music and things like that. So I'm kind of focused in other directions right this moment, but, but I'm always writing. I get up in the morning a lot and, and I'll, and something will strike me and I'll go, I need to write about that. So writing for me is revelatory. Like it, it, you know, I sit and start writing and then, then all of a sudden I go, I didn't realize that's what I thought, but mm, I do think that. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes I go, I never thought that, and now I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's how writing, you know, writing can be revelatory like that, so. I'm Jimmy Summers from Afternoons with Heart and Humor. Something you may not know about me is I'm really conscious of what I put in my body. So I eat healthy, try to stay as active as possible. That's also why I was so excited when I heard that Dr. Kellum at the Kellum Stem Cell Institute is able to retrieve my own stem cells and place them exactly where I need them most with focused infusions. If you're ready for something more effective and a healthier way to heal, get more information at KellumStemCellInstitute.com. 